welcome to the latest episode of ISMacast. This comes with the odd title of The Illusion of Certainty. Over the last 10 to 15 years in particular of my career, I've watched changes in the health system whereby there is a significant focus on the creation of guidelines and adherence to pathways. This gives a sense of certainty and a sense of clarity to the way we approach the investigation and management of patients. What I'd like to do in this episode is really work through some of the issues around that and make it clear that it's not quite as clear or as certain as it would seem to be. This is not an admonition to steer away from guidelines and it's not an anti-guideline or anti-pathway stance it's really a plea to say that when you use guidelines or when you use pathways, think seriously about what it is that you are applying and in whom. It'll become clear what I mean with respect to that as we work through this. The first question really is, why do we use guidelines? Why do we create pathways? There's a system level answer to that which really relates to variance and the amount of variability in how patients are managed within the health system. Studies into the level of variance within the system have come up with some quite remarkable answers. There have been studies that have shown beta blocker use in myocardial infarction patients ranging between 5 and 92%. Other work that shows that adjusted coronary artery bypass graft rates vary between 3 in 1,000 to 11 in 1,000, and that it's actually related more to the number of cath labs in the vicinity and not to the illness rates. Surgery for back pain varies sixfold. Medical visits in the last six months of life uh, vary from an average of 2 to an average of 35. There is a flip side to that particular question, though, and that is how much variance is actually bad. In biology, variety is the rule, not the exception. And what drives the variance? Is it a lack of knowledge? Is it a lack of care? Is it individual patient variation? Is it a mix of all three? Probably. We certainly focus more on the former two, the lack of knowledge and the lack of care whenever we are reviewing this sort of circumstance. The second view to take on this really is the personal paradigm for the treating clinician. And that is an aim for certainty, for the firm conviction that something really is the case and that it's actually reliably true, giving us confidence with respect to the way we approach the diagnostics and the management of the patient in front of us. So what did we come up with? We came up with the guideline solution, if you like. And the premise here is that we have an evidence base, evidence-based medicine. We develop guidelines, and according to the World Health Organization, guidelines are recommendations intended to assist providers, underlined assist, and recipients of healthcare and other stakeholders to make informed decisions. Once those guidelines are developed, then they're promulgated so that most people will know about them and hopefully use them. Built on top of those guidelines, we create clinical pathways, and built into them, we often have clinical decision rules. We need to be aware, though, that each step of that process brings with it a potential for creation of error. Further to all that, 
these guidelines can end up playing an important role in health policy formation, have evolved to cover topics across a healthcare continuum, not just from the direct patient interaction, but through to health promotion, screening, diagnosis. There's certainly no doubt that there is some research to show that there is evidence of benefit with some guidelines. Adherence to guidelines lower the risk of hospitalisation in patients with chronic heart failure across several European countries. A study of patients with a new diagnosis of primary breast cancer showed that the greater the number of violations of guideline adherence, the lower the survival. In patients with hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia, guideline adherent initial IV antibiotic drug therapy was clinically superior, saved more lives and was less expensive than non-guideline adherent therapy. And guideline adherent antithrombotic prophylaxis in patients discharged with atrial fibrillation was also associated with lower all-cause and cardiovascular mortality. So that all sounds well and good, but there are problems with the solution, and certainly with an evidence base suggesting some benefit in relation to some guidelines, that doesn't necessarily translate into all guidelines are going to result in benefit for the patients and better outcomes. The first question is in relation to the evidence base, the starting point. Are the guidelines truly evidence-based? Is all evidence good evidence? Is the evidence all the evidence? Because we know that when it comes to the production of research papers, that generally the papers that are positive are going to be published, and negative papers tend to be filed in the rubbish bin. What do we do in an evidence vacuum? Because there's a lot of those when it comes to managing a whole wide range of clinical circumstances. And finally, does guideline compliance necessarily mean better outcomes? How do we use those guidelines or pathways that we create? Are they just a clinical tool? Should they be used administratively or medical legally? That's all open to question. When the guidelines are used, how are they interpreted? There are a couple of papers that have shown that developers of guidelines see evidence-based guidelines in quotation marks as incorporating a systematic search for evidence, explicitly evaluating the quality of that evidence, then espousing a set of recommendations based on the best available evidence, even when that evidence is not high quality. Users, however, have generally been seen to perceive them as evidence-based frequently misinterpreted as the recommendations are based solely on high quality evidence. So randomized control trials, for, for example. In a nutshell, that reads as it's a guideline, it's based on randomized control trials across the board, and every single step in it is based on that level of evidence, when in fact that's rarely if ever true. Which evidence gets incorporated into the guideline? There are so many parties that have jumped on the evidence-based medicine bandwagon, and so many clinical practice guidelines have been churned out by individuals, professional organizations, insurers, that that whole benefit of uniformity may disappear because they overlap, they conflict, they, they choose different elements of evidence to actually be constructed on. In an ideal world, the guideline decision points would all be based on solid scientific evidence, preferably derived from a meta-review of large double-blind randomised controlled trials. But in reality, that sort of gold standard of evidence is rarely available, except in some, some industry-sponsored drug trials. So what actually happens is we end up relying on other methods determining best evidence in quotation marks, 
small clinical trials with insufficient statistical power, studies with a non-randomized control group, other non-randomized control studies, studies with a control group such as case studies or testimonials. Guidelines also get developed with consensus meetings and focus groups. The next thing to observe or question is, are randomized control trials really the bomb? They aim usually to answer a very specific question that concerns a clearly predefined cohort with inclusion and exclusion criteria. Therefore, they have to be directed at a specific population. When we're working clinically, patients rarely have only the characteristics of those enrolled in the trials, so we extrapolate beyond that and really are applying it in a circumstance where it may not be appropriate. For example, how should we treat the patient who's got three or four diseases at the same time or background comorbidities, coronary artery disease, kidney failure, diabetes mellitus, respiratory failure? They are usually in the group of patients who have been excluded from the clinical trials. There was a French philosopher, mathematician, theoretical physicist by the name of Henri Poincaré, who actually said, science is built up of facts as a house is built of stones, but an accumulation of facts is no more a science than a heap of stones is a house. You could replace the concept of science there and put in the idea of guidelines or pathways in the same fashion. Each step will have some evidence base or justification in isolation, but we don't really have an evidence base when we put all those steps together to say that that is the thing that gets the best outcome. There are other potential hiccups with guideline production and promulgation. They're often a bit slow to take up the evidence that is reliable, so they can be behind the times. They don't take clinical experience into account, and they might actually start to inhibit a physician's critical capability. In some randomised trials, after randomisation to one or another group, some patients decided not to take part in the trial and left the final decision as to which therapy they would receive to their treating physician. After the end of the trial, it was found that the patients who had followed their physician's recommendation had a better outcome than those who had actually ultimately taken part in the trial, suggesting that the physician's critical capabilities and their judgment were a better guide to the care for that particular group of patients. Not proof, but it's certainly a signal. There are question marks that arise with regard to the generalizability of the evidence that's actually put into the guidelines. Guidelines tend to address the common or the average patient. One study demonstrated the absence of incorporating the impact of multiple chronic conditions, socio-political context and patient preferences in 29, 39% and 57% of a sample of guidelines respectively. Then you have to consider are there structural problems with the guidelines. In Lancet in 2000, which is going back a bit I know, looking at practice guidelines developed by specialty societies, 431 guidelines were reviewed, 67% did not report any description of the type of stakeholders they were focused on, 88% had no information on searches for published studies, and 82% no explicit grading of the strength of the recommendations they were making. That did improve over time for searches from 2 to 18% and explicit grading of evidence from 6 to 27%. As I mentioned, evidence-based is not necessarily evidence-based. 
looking at three different conditions, diabetes mellitus, dyslipidemia and hypertension, three pan-national guideline panels, United States, Canada and Europe for comparison, there were 338 treatment recommendations in nine guidelines. 231, that's 68%, cited randomised control evidence, but only 105, 45%, randomised control-based recommendations were based on high-quality evidence. The randomised control trials were applicable to the population specified in only 64 of 126 cases, that's 51%, so not really appropriate to the condition they were looking at. Randomised control trials use surrogate outcomes in 5,926 cases. That's, that's, only, that's 47%. So half of the randomised control trials that were involved didn't really have patient-orientated outcomes in their measure. In a paper in 2007 in the Public Library Open Access Medical Journal, they noted that external validity is the neglected dimension of evidence ranking so what that means is that whilst there may have been validity with respect to the population studied within the particular randomized control trial, that was not necessarily extendable to the broader population of patients. There's also been an observation that randomized control trials might be used as the basis for multiple recommendations, so the same trial for, for multiple different recommendations. The randomised control trials won't necessarily provide the same quality of evidence for each recommendation. So as an example, in 2003 there was a kidney disease outcome quality initiative guideline promulgated with statins for all patients with chronic kidney disease and an LDL greater than 2.59. They in, That included end-stage renal disease. The cited evidence was a randomised control trial called the Heart Protection Study but that study actually specifically excluded end-stage renal disease. A subsequent randomised control trial showed no reduction in the primary outcome of cardiovascular events or death, but unexpected increase in the risk of stroke. As time has gone on, the strength of evidence that gets quoted seems to be getting diluted down in a number of guidelines. Again, going back a little bit, guidelines with more than one revision or update by September 2008 the number of recommendations increased from 1,330 to 1,973, from the first to the most recent version at that stage. The largest increase was in Class II recommendations. 16 current guidelines reported levels of evidence which were at level A for 11% and at level C for 48%. There was an article in JAMA that came to the conclusion that recommendations issued in the current American College of Cardiology or American Heart Association Clinical Practice Guidelines are largely developed from lower levels of evidence or expert opinion. The increase in Class II recommendations may not, on the face of it, be bad. However, um, the possibility is that that might lead to greater use of procedures or interventions in the setting of uncertain benefit. Nearly 30% of PCI in the US in a paper done in 2005 were based on class 2 indications. The clinical success declined across the indication classes from 92.8% of the class 1 to 85.5% of the class 3 with an increase in adverse events associated with it. When guidelines are being developed you would figure same topic same evidence right? Evidence-based guidelines on some topic would usually cite the same evidence 
Analysis of 15 guidelines for type 2 diabetes mellitus revealed little overlap. 10 studies, less than 1% of all citations cited in at least 6 guidelines. The most frequently cited study, conducted exclusively in patients without type 2 diabetes mellitus. When guidelines are being created, the panels that create them face a number of significant, potentially insurmountable hurdles. There's a necessity of adding each new treatment on top of the proven therapy. Comparison with historical treatments becomes difficult. There's a growing use of composite morbidity and mortality outcomes, and it's with those there's always a muddying of the waters as to which particular element of that composite morbidity and mortality outcome really carries the difference. There are sometimes apparently conflicting outcomes from similar trials. And then there's the appropriateness or otherwise of trials in separate but related disease areas as to whether that should be incorporated in the evidence. And we haven't even talked about bias at this stage. There was a paper that came out by John Ioannidis back in 2016 titled Evidence-Based Medicine Has Been Hijacked, a report to David Sackett talked about how clinical investigators flocked to try and get co-authorship in multi-centre trials, meta-analyses and powerful guidelines to which they can contribute little of essence, that there are vested interests dictating the research agenda and its evidence base aura which is further propagated in professional societies and large conferences. He notes that the GDP devoted to healthcare is increasing, spurious trials and even more spurious meta-analyses are published at a geometrically increasing pace and conflicted guidelines are more influential than ever, with spurious risk factors alive and well. Quacks have become even more obnoxious, and approximately 85% of biomedical research is wasted. That's a fairly grim number. Then if you layer on top of that the potential conflicts of interest in the panels, 56% of 498 individuals in one paper reported a conflict of interest. Being a consultant or a member of an advisory board was the most common type. The percentage varied between guidelines from 13 to 87%. Of 478 companies, the number per guideline ranged from 2 to 242 companies with a mean of 38. One company, the most frequently reported company, in 7 of 17 guidelines on the topic. There are guidelines for guidelines, and the question can be asked, do they work? If we look at the stroke guideline, from a few years ago, back in 2013, the American Heart Association states it makes every effort to avoid any actual or potential conflicts of interest that may arise as a result of a business interest of a member of the writing panel. However, from conflict of interest disclosure statements around those particular guidelines, 13 of the 15 authors had ties to the manufacturers of products that diagnose and treat acute stroke, and 11 had ties to companies that market alteplase. Around the same topic, stroke, the American College of Emergency Physicians and the American Academy of Neurology, three of eight panellists disclosed ties to the manufacturers, seven of eight had either direct ties to the manufacturer or indirect ties, knowingly or not, through affiliations with a foundation for education and research in neurological emergencies. Guideline readers were unlikely to know that according to its 2008 tax return, 100% of the $97,000 donated to that particular organisation that year came from drug companies, including a significant amount from the central company producing the alpaplase. Seven of eight panellists had previously published or lectured on the merits of alpaplase for stroke. 
The eighth panellist, Robert Wares, described himself as an agnostic and surprised that he was actually named as an author. He'd resigned from the committee six years earlier. Not one sceptic was included on the panel. I could go on with a number of papers that have been written around similar sorts of topics, similar conflicts of interest, similar issues with the panels that actually produce the guidelines. That would be a bit pointless and my aim is not to completely discourage people from using guidelines or clinical decision aids or to stop people from creating pathways. Certainly when it comes to guidelines, we need to actually approach them though looking for red flags. Is the sponsor a professional society that receives substantial industry funding? Is the sponsor a proprietary company or is it undeclared or hidden? Do the committee chairs have any financial conflict? Are there multiple panel members with any financial conflict? Is there any suggestion of committee stacking that would preordain a recommendation regarding a controversial topic? Is there no or limited involvement of an expert in methodology in the evaluation of evidence? Is there no external review? Is there no inclusion of a non-physician expert, patient representative, community stakeholder? That's probably the most common failing, to be honest, in most guidelines. In the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine in 2015, there was an article titled 10 Things You Should Consider Before You Believe a Clinical Practice Guideline. Number one is, is it reasonably current? And ideally you want living guidelines that keep up to date with evidence as it is confirmed and promulgated. Are the clinical questions specific enough to deliver practical and actionable answers? Specific, do the specific questions account for the age of the evidence? The interventions and the comparison against which they are brought, are they clinically relevant? Are the outcomes patient important as opposed to convenient surrogate or substitute endpoints? Have they looked at both desirable and undesirable consequences of recommended courses of action? Systematic reviews should be clearly linked to the recommendations. And finally, is the certainty of the evidence explicit? Now that's a bit long and a bit dry. It's a bit negative in many ways, but it's really to highlight that we are utilizing tools which are imperfect, not necessarily fit for purpose. And part of our role as clinicians is to actually look at the guideline in the context of the patient that we are looking at and be comfortable that the way we are applying it is appropriate to that particular patient. Clinical judgment is not a dying art, but it's being utilized in a different way these days. And we have to be willing to accept that one size doesn't fit all, that there are significant patient variances that we need to think about when we're applying diagnostic algorithms and, and management algorithms, and accepting that there will be an element of variance and that that variance is not necessarily a bad thing. And there's some food for thought to hold you over until next time. Not necessarily practical step by step, but important to consider nonetheless.